This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. This week, microgrids, hurricanes, and that familiar term, resiliency. It's been an extreme month in the Atlantic. Four hurricanes now, Harvey, Irma, Katia, and Jose have formed, three hitting land. Two of them, Harvey and Irma, caused extraordinary damage to islands and coastal communities. Climate change is at the tip of many people's tongues in the aftermath. But so is a word that became very familiar to those who lived the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy, resilience. Microgrids, of course, became a major part of resiliency plans in New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut after Sandy in 2012. We'll look at how that's influencing the conversation today, or maybe not influencing it, after Harvey and Irma, and also get a snapshot of how microgrids in Texas and Florida fared, and some other notable projects in the works today. So I'm lucky today, because I have uh, both folks who are going to be talking about this with me right here in the office. My co-host is Shale Khan. He's back visiting from the West Coast. How's it going? Great. It's nice to see your bright and shining face. You know, normally we record in your office, and uh, that's been stripped apart. You you came back, and every piece of furniture and hardware had been taken by you know mysterious gnomes. Yeah, well, GTM Boston <laughs> expanded onto another floor. We now have two floors in this building, and I got back, and my my what had been my office here is now. Uh, like sort of a semi-conference room, but it was like a similar feeling to, you know, I went off to college and came back and my parents had turned my bedroom into like a den for my mom's collections. It felt very similar to me. <laughs> we also have our resident expert on microgrids, Colleen Metalitza, a GTM research grid analyst who's normally in our New York office, but she's here in Boston conveniently visiting us and we're going to pick her brain. Colleen, how are you? I'm doing well. I'm shocked by the palatial size of this office compared to New York. <laughs> it is. Everyone's on top of each other in New York. We're lucky here. Although it can make for some echoey recording because we're in this cavernous room here and uh, we don't have much around us. But we're slow. We're growing into this space. We are an expanding team for sure. Speaking of expanding, let's talk about the role, the expanding role of microgrids and um, whether or not it's making a dent in the way people are talking about resiliency and actually acting on resiliency post-hurricanes. Shale, why don't you give us a recap of kind of everything that's happened with both extreme weather and the discussion around resiliency from the government? Because there's there's a lot to unpack, and I just want to run down the list. Yeah, we're like clearly having a moment right now, I think, in the U.S. surrounding reliability and resiliency. Even before these two recent hurricanes that have caused so much damage to the grid in the Southeast, there was this emerging conversation around it because I think the terms reliability and resiliency have become something of a rallying cry for this presidential administration's attitude towards issues as they pertain to the grid. So we've spent a lot of time and many minutes talking about the DOE grid study that came out a few weeks ago that was you know largely focused on and said countless times um, increasingly need for reliability and resiliency. It's also become a term that was used a lot in the nominating hearings for or the confirmation hearings for the new FERC commissioners uh, appointed by the president. It's even sort of bled into the Sunshot program, which is the solar sort of R&D and deployment program, announcing that it had reached its goal three years early, which it did earlier this week. And then also as part of that, announcing sort of an expanded mission. And within that new expanded mission, statement are the words reliability and resiliency. So it's clearly become the terms 
that the administration likes to use to talk about what is needed. And that kind of was already happening. And then it came even further to the forefront, I think, because now we've had these two major storms and just completely widespread power outages. This is, Harvey was, was, I think a little bit more of a traditional situation in the context of hurricane coming through and cutting out power. But Irma is basically entirely unprecedented. It is, by most accounts, the largest blackout that we've had in history in the U.S. Um, at one point, there were 15 million people without power in Florida alone, and then another million or so in Georgia and South Carolina. And in contrast to that, Sandy, which was one of the biggest power outages in history, was 8.5 million people stretching to basically the Midwest. So pretty substantial. Right. So this is like double that size in terms of just number of people without power. And, it, you know, we're recovering from that fast. People are coming back online. I'd actually recommend anybody who isn't already doing this, follow the Florida PSC on Twitter. Um, they're tweeting out like three times a day an outage report. And so you can just watch as the days go by how many people are getting power back. So over the past couple of days, it was, and they're, they're measuring in numbers of accounts, not numbers of people, right? So it's actually more people than this. But as of uh, two days ago, at the time that we're recording, there were still 4.7 million accounts without power. Midday yesterday, it was 3.5 million accounts. As of 9 a.m. this morning, 3.1. So that's still a lot of people, but you can actually see that they're getting a lot of people back businesses and individuals back online pretty quickly. It still remains a gigantic outage. And they're talking about potentially this being weeks for some customers before they get full power back. So, you know, all this is happening. And this is like a very important human story just to bring it on to a sad note for a second. There's been now a bunch of news reports over the past week of this one really sad story in Hollywood, Florida. There was this nursing home that um, lost power, did have a backup generator, but it was a backup generator that was old and shoddy and they'd been written up for it before and it failed um, and they lost air conditioning and now they're up to, they've found eight people have died um, within this nursing home as a result. So this is having like very real impacts on people throughout that area of the country right now. There was the Arkema chemical plant in Texas where there were explosions and fumes shooting into the atmosphere because their multiple backup power systems failed. So whether or not the administration had placed this intense focus on reliability and resiliency, it is incredibly important for us to be talking about it right now. And so Oh, and I'm sorry, I even missed another thing. Um, just yesterday, the Department of Energy announced uh, awards of up to $50 million to DOE's national laboratories to support R&D on next generation tools and technologies to improve resiliency. Again, that wasn't in response to these hurricanes. That was happening anyway. It just happened to be that they announced the awards just now. So there's just a lot going on in this area right now. Well, so Sheila, that's a huge list, and we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. Colleen, first, I want to just hear from you. You were actually in New Jersey when Sandy hit five years ago, almost exactly five years ago. What was your experience like? Yeah, so I was living in Princeton, New Jersey at the time, uh, working on energy efficiency and demand response programs. And we lost power pretty quickly into the storm. Um, it didn't come on that the rest of that night. In the morning, I went out with my roommates to assess the damage that had happened. Uh, you saw a lot of downed trees, uh, went downtown and was surprised to find that both, uh, you know, the local library was still had power because there were underground distribution lines, as well as Princeton University, which I only lived a 10 minute walk from, had 
power still because they had a microgrid. And so we were able to go onto campus, go into some of the buildings, which they had unlocked to charge our supplies, charge our phones, call people, you know, download some movies so we could watch them at home at night (laughs) on our laptops. And for me, that was really great. And it was also a really wonderful sense of community being able to go somewhere uh, after a storm, which is, I think, what you started to see in the Northeast with the focus on community microgrids. You were one of these digital refugees, so to speak. I was, you know, need to have your movies in an outage. (laughs) So Sandy's an interesting case, I think, because we did have this conversation, a similar conversation about resiliency in the face of natural disaster after Sandy. uh, And it did have a pretty meaningful result, or at least seemed like it was going to in the Northeast in the states that were hit. I guess, Stephen, I'm interested to ask you first, because you covered this a lot and even wrote a little ebook on responses to Sandy. Like, what was the political response to Sandy um, as it pertained to the grid? What came out of that? Well, if you'll remember, the, the response was very strong and swift. New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Maryland, a bunch of East Coast states stepped up and said, this is climate change in action. And if we're going to keep our community safe, we're going to have to rebuild in a different way and rebuild infrastructure to make cities stronger and protect us from more severe storms and also try to develop the grid differently. So there were all these new awards and pilots for microgrid projects. And Colleen has been tracking many of those and can speak to the progress or lack thereof in states that have tried to develop some of these microgrid projects for critical facilities. Um, But there was a very strong political response, particularly because these were states that had already been interested in renewable energy, had set targets, are fairly progressive politically. And so it wasn't a stretch for them to come out and say, we need to be more aggressive about tackling climate change and making our cities and states stronger. So this Sandy... Uh, outage came after a bunch of different outages in a row. You have Hurricane Irene that hit New England and caused outages for millions of people and decimated Vermont. It was kind of a surprise storm. There was a major uh, nor'easter snowstorm in October that knocked power out for millions of people. And then there was this derecho in Washington, D.C. and in the suburbs in Maryland that knocked out power for millions of people. And was a response nightmare for Pepco, uh, which is uh, you know has been deploying a lot of smart meters and has has tried to make its power outage response better and has since improved. But that was a big wake up call for people who said like this was a very swift event that that caught us by surprise and the company took weeks to get power back on for some people. So all of this came together at once to accelerate discussion about climate change in already fairly progressive states, which then very quickly set targets for microgrids and other resiliency projects. Right. And I just want to make the note that we're going to spend a fair amount of time on on this podcast talking about microgrids in particular, and they are a solution to resiliency, but not the only solution. We can mention some of the other ones that have received investments as well. But Colleen, like what has actually come out of that in the Northeast? What have we seen deployed as a result of the post-Sandy activity? Right. So in the Northeast states, we've had 20 microgrids deployed since Sandy. Uh, I won't say 100% of them were state-funded result of a specific program, but you have seen you know, things in, in New York, 
Connecticut, New Jersey, Massachusetts, especially on what you're also seeing is that funding is rolling. So uh, Connecticut started with the first microgrid specific funding program in 2013. They awarded $18 million. And just uh, a month ago, they actually awarded another $26.5 million for round four of this microgrid funding program. Now, not all of those microgrids have been built yet, and it's been four years. So I think what you're finding is a lot of these funding programs across New York, Massachusetts, New Jersey, and Connecticut are for community microgrids, which are inherently more complicated a lot of times because they often involved mul- multiple stakeholders. Community microgrids as distinct from like a single hospital or a single university campus doing a microgrid on their own. Yes, exactly. So uh, when a wire crosses a street, it becomes a utility. Uh, so that makes complications in building these larger microgrids that have been talked about. So some of these community microgrids have been scaled down to result in the ability to follow regulations. Others uh, in New York are, they're taking a longer approach. So New York Prize is a $40 million fund by the New York State Energy Research and Development Association. And it's a three rounds. So the first round was about $10 million for 83 feasibility studies. That was completed in 2015. In 2017, this past April, they awarded 11 $1 million grants to programs to do design studies. And then next October, they're expected to award five to seven actual funds to build microgrids. So, so this is all talking about microgrids. And I think it's worth just taking a moment to explain why a microgrid can help in a situation like this, as opposed to what I think a lot of people think of, which is just backup generation. So there, you, a lot of people have generators in markets that have frequent outages or in the event of a rare outage. Microgrids are sort of a newer solution to the problem that have some benefits over just backup generation. Can you just kind of run through those quickly? Right. So I'd say one of the big benefits that you see uh, is just in the fact that microgrids tend to be more automatic and and run more frequently. So if there's a power outage, it can kick on automatically. Some some backup generators can do this as well, but it also knows how to often shed load, meaning uh, you only keep on the most critical components. So if you're a household, let's say, although we're not speaking today about household microgrids, but uh, you could only keep on your refrigerator and your air conditioning. And, you know, maybe you don't need lights as much. You certainly don't need your TV. Um, So it enables you to keep the power on for longer with a smaller load. Uh, Another thing is that they're because they are run more frequently, microgrids often uh, serve services to the grid when they aren't needing to provide backup power. You have less of a risk of there being a malfunctioning generator that you didn't know about because you only run your backup generator once every six months to test it. Okay, so coming out of Sandy, there's this big conversation around climate change leads to a conversation around resiliency, leads to a bunch of funding for microgrids and some other distribution grid technology, other things to to harden the grid. But it's largely restricted to the area that was affected by Sandy, right? Despite the fact that we had this big hurricane and there was a, a conversation about this sort of bleeding out onto the national scale, it really didn't result in, for example, a bunch of microgrids getting developed in Florida. Why? 
I don't think we totally have the answer to that, but I will say that the thesis of that ebook that I wrote a few years back now was that there would be a major policy shift toward microgrid development as part of these this greater resiliency planning. Now, we didn't make a particular prediction on actual microgrid sector growth, but we did predict a much greater policy response in states. And I, this was not just me making up this prediction. I was talking to many, many experts. There were uh, folks like organizations like, for example, Accenture, which did some major um, interviews with utility executives and regulators. And they said that they believe that Sandy had completely changed the framework for future planning, for, for, for distribution planning and transmission planning. And so we looked at that. And because the because more people were talking publicly about it, we assumed it would start to change planning processes across the country. And it did. Not. I, I will say to the credit of everywhere else. Right. I mean, we're talking about microgrids, which to which they're they're a solution to the how do you keep the lights on when the power goes out for the grid. Right. But there's a whole other suite of technologies, largely what would have been deemed smart grid technologies, a lot of which we still call grid edge technologies that serve not necessarily to keep the lights on, but to try to get the lights back on faster in the event of an outage. So as an example, Jeff St. John for GTM um, reported last week that Centerpoint, which is a utility in Houston um, and, and around in Texas, uh, had invested a bunch of money into a smart meter network that was allowing them to automatically detect outages. So they tweeted out to customers, there's no need to call about power outages. We can see it because of our smart meters. They've also got what's called a FLIZER system or FLIZER system. I never know how to pronounce the acronym, but it's fault location, isolation, and service restoration system, which is just another mechanism to quickly detect where outages are and do some diagnostics on what causes them. And you see some of this happening with FPL in Florida as well. So there's like one category of things, which is keep the lights from ever going off in the first place. But there's, there's a whole other one, which is also part of resiliency, which is just like rapid detection, diagnostics and restoration. Right. Colleen, I want to hear your thoughts on this. Just to follow up on what I said, there probably are a couple very big reasons why we haven't seen a push around the country like we saw in some of the northeastern states. And that's because in states like Texas and Florida, you have very different types of planning. I mean, Florida won't even use the words climate change in infrastructure planning reports. You have a governor that refuses to talk about climate change. And because creating new regulatory frameworks and new incentives through the legislature or the governor's office for these types of new types of projects requires some sort of requires a certain type of political framing. You're just not getting that in states like Florida or Texas. Right. So I would say two things. I mean, I think one to start the Northeast has certainly had the most focus uh, from a state level on microgrids and it has the, the highest concentration of microgrid capacity, but it's definitely not the only area that's doing microgrids. So uh, Alaska, you know, is mostly remote microgrids, but is actually sort of the the founder. And you'll see Senator Murkowski uh, of Alaska is constantly, you know, promoting the use of microgrids across the U.S. Uh, and California also recently announced uh, forty five million dollars in microgrid development program as well. So, on their perspective, actually, they're focusing on renewables only microgrids, which will be interesting to see how that pans out because. To date, 72% of microgrid capacity is diesel 
natural gas or CHP generated. That's a good segue into the microgrids that we know existed in the places that were hit by either Harvey or Irma. Um, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, as we said before, there are fewer of them than there are in the Northeast, but they exist. So what were they? How did they perform? What do we know so far? Right. So in Texas, there's uh, there are several microgrids. The vast majority of them in Texas are these natural gas only microgrids run by Enchanted Rock, which is a company that provides a reliability service uh, in exchange for being able to get the value of the ancillary services uh, that they can sell for the natural gas generators. So I guess to sort of reframe that, they have a business model where they sell a natural gas generator to a customer. Uh, Most of their customers currently are HEB grocery stores down in the Houston area. And HEB can buy this gas generator for a very low upfront cost. It's sited at their location. And if there's an outage, they have a microgrid and they have reliable power. But when there isn't an outage, Enchanted Rock operates the system and the ancillary services that are sold to the grid from the system go to the third-party investor who paid for the majority of the upfront costs. And this enables them to provide backup power at a low cost, which I think is one of the big barriers to commercializing microgrids. And what you saw during Harvey was that there were 18 HEB grocery stores that were able to island and three of the Bucky convenience stores where they're also piloting of a lot of their projects. And in speaking with Enchanted Rock, they said that these stores were able to then provide, you know, a bit of a community to the people in the area um, and were able to run some of them up to nine days on on backup generation power, which was a very long period of time. And if you compare that to what solar and storage could do, what you could do with how much diesel you have on site, uh, I think that leads into a broader discussion of of fuel sources and and how you keep that going. Well, let's have that conversation because I think that's that's interesting. Um, you and I both noted as we were talking earlier that there's this article in uh, it's like on fastcompany.com about a single guy, a uh, homeowner in Orlando, Florida, which received an outage but was not like the center of what was hit by by Irma, who had solar on the roof and a power wall. Um, and was able to ride out the outage using the power wall, using the battery and the solar generation. So what the Fast Company article didn't really get into is the fact that he had a 21-hour outage, pretty short relative to what we're seeing for a lot of the people who were hard hit by Irma. And so that battery that he had was able to ride him through on essential loads. He stopped using a lot of his load except for the the essential stuff and it was able to get him through those 21 hours but that same system probably would not have got him through the nine-day outage that one of those heb stores had or the multiple weeks that we might see for other customers so that's sort of a knock against a renewable only microgrid or just a solar plus storage system as a full solution here right right i agree and i think on the you know, on the flip side of it happening with diesel fuel supplies, there was a hospital in Florida as well that got down to about two hours worth of diesel left. And luckily, they were able to get this emergency shipment. But you can imagine a situation 
uh, like Houston, where you had such bad flooding that that might not have been possible if someone had been on diesel there. Right. And Stephen, you actually reported on this was another thing after Sandy that like diesel shortages became a real issue for people who had backup generators there, right? Yeah, exactly. There were huge constraints and, you know, the price per gallon was shooting up in the 20s and $30 range. Yeah, you said it got up to $35 a gallon at one point. But the the fuel constraint problem is an interesting one. You know, these um, enchanted rock projects rely on a series of natural gas pipelines, which is why they had so many days of supply. And enchanted rock, in, in press reports I've seen and on their website, say that these are relatively protected. And so clearly they weren't impacted by the severe, severe flooding. Um, I don't know, like, what kind of event would impact those, like, how severe the flooding would need to be to impact that that fuel supply. But presumably, there's sort of a threshold, and you you could potentially cut off supply. Obviously, diesel, trucking in diesel is a real problem in flooded areas. So you you have drawbacks for every type of technology, um, renewables only or natural gas or uh, propane or diesel only as well. So these are just real things that you need to consider when building out a microgrid. Right. And something I thought was interesting in speaking with uh, a microgrid developer in Haiti that actually took their solar panels off of their array and and moved them, which is in preparation, in preparation for for Harvey coming, they were worried that there might be damage. And I'll say this is not something that would be possible in the US probably due to the cost of labor. but it was an interesting idea. But what they were able to do is they're a solar diesel hybrid microgrid. And so they pre-ordered diesel. They were able to ride out, you know, the time when they didn't have their solar up on diesel. And so I think it, again, just speaks to the need of having multiple types of solutions to help deal with when different resources go down. Uh, and just to go back to your flooding point as well, one of the things that was interesting with, with Enchanted Rock was they said, you know, we could have potentially faced flooding issues. They have, you know, they've built things to certain codes. They've, you know, elevated their generators. But at the same time, they said once a store becomes flooded, it's not safe to run the generator anyway. So there does sort of become this thing that, you know, if if your store is flooded, if your community center where people are supposed to shelter is, is flooding, at some point, the power isn't your biggest issue. So I think the question here, I mean, or an important question is, uh, do we think that a more distributed system, a more distributed grid, which we talk about having all these other benefits, would it perform better in a situation like this? What are the trade-offs associated with a distributed grid in a hurricane-type situation? Uh, and then is it something that FPL, for example, should be pushing for right now? Or is it something that we should be talking about over the next decade? So I guess first, Colleen, like, Talk us through some of the costs and benefits of having a distributed grid when you have a a hurricane-like event. Right. So with the hurricane event, you're going to get different regions that are going to be hit with more extreme wind, less extreme wind. Uh, You may see tornado activity in some areas. And if you have a distributed grid, you may see some generation in areas that isn't affected at all that can serve parts and some that might be directly in the path and will be destroyed. And so in that situation, you might say, well, that's much better than, say, a tornado hitting, you know, a central power, centralized power plant. On the other hand, if you see destruction along the lines of what we saw on some of the Caribbean islands that were hit by the full, you know, hurricane level five impact of Irma, 90, 95 percent of buildings destroyed, 
I mean, I guess in some sense, again, your power is not really going to matter at that point because you don't have anything to power. But also, if you have these distributed resources, it's going to take longer to replace them than maybe a centralized system would in that case. So you're both lowering your risk in some in the sense of nothing will be hit directly all at once generally. But then if you get this mega storm, you have a higher risk there. It's funny. I can see the argument in either direction. If we have any like utility engineers listening, uh, give us your feedback on this too. Because I could see on one hand that makes sense to me. On the other hand, in general, um, we find that it tends to be easier to build out a lot of distributed things very quickly in on the mainland grid. This may not be so true on island grids. Um, just because you can get it done, you can cycle through them all much faster. And if to the extent that you have things like permitting and interconnection, all those kinds of requirements, you can often just get a lot of stuff done simultaneously as opposed to all the sequential needs of a single big piece of equipment or a single big generator. I also want to go back to actually something that you mentioned before, Stephen, which I'm not sure is is obviously true, which is you mentioned that you think one of the reasons we haven't seen as much of this in in states like Texas and Florida is because you there isn't as much of a focus or or even admission of anthropogenic climate change. And so they don't have that political impetus. And and to me, in some ways, so climate change is obviously important here. I mean, there's the conversation around did climate change exacerbate how strong Irma was. Whether or not that's true, you know, looking forward over a long period of time, it seems obviously true from the science that climate change is going to increase the severity of events like this. And so the need for resiliency and reliability will inherently increase as climate change gets worse and worse, which is also a funny factor that was just not mentioned in the DOE grid report, but what actually made their case for why we need all this reliability and resiliency uh, is because of climate change. So there is that case to make, but in some ways you don't need it, I don't think, in order to make a strong policy case for investments in anything that is going to support resiliency. Whether or not climate change is causing these hurricanes to get worse or become more frequent, we obviously still need to be able to get keep the power on for critical facilities and get the power back on faster. Like though there has been a ton of improvement in outage restoration and everything in in both during Sandy and then now FPL I think is doing as good a job as it possibly can do. The fact that anybody is still without power for weeks to me is unacceptable. And so obviously we need to fix that, whether or not it's because of climate change. So I agree with you that I think climate change doesn't need to be the whole part of the story for why this is happening. But I do think that a large part of the reason that Sandy had such a swift response in terms of resiliency was the fact that people said this isn't a one in 100 year or a one in 500 year storm, right? Which is what Trump called, I think, Harvey before Irma hit. Uh, If you recognize that this is going to happen more frequently or even that the severity when things happen is going to be worse, right? We don't actually have a lot of scientific evidence that there's going to be more hurricanes as a result of climate change, but that they will be generally more powerful. Uh, then you start to say, okay, well, this isn't the only time that a Harvey is going to hit us in this lifetime. And once that starts becoming true, your calculations on costs start changing a lot. Right. I mean, for God's sake, even go just look back to Sandy was five years ago. Sandy was like a once in a lifetime thing. And now we've had Harvey and Irma over the, the past three weeks. 
again, you don't have to be like the biggest believer in climate change to just recognize that these were off on our calculations of the once in however many years. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you don't, you absolutely don't need to talk about climate change to put the appropriate market mechanisms in place to figure out the the details of how to encourage deployment of this stuff, nor do you necessarily need direct incentives all the time. I mean, Enchanted Rock has shown that like it can go and provide a pretty powerful business case to supermarkets or maybe other critical facilities um, and make its business model work. So you can, this, I mean, this stuff is happening regardless of whether we talk about climate change. But if we're talking about truly remaking our energy system or at least critical facilities and how they intersect with the energy system, you do need to talk about long-term planning in a different way. And we're not having that conversation in Texas or Florida, really. Yeah. But actually, you also just pointed out something that I think is important, which is Enchanted Rock being an example of the fact that a lot of the technologies you end up implementing for the sake of resiliency have lots of economic benefits even when the power is just fine. So Colleen mentioned that microgrids can sell services to the grid or provide services to the customers on the microgrid, even when the power is on. If you look at that sort of $50 million of awards that the DOE just made to support resiliency over the last couple of days, it's like a litany of grid edge technologies. It's investments in microgrids, but it's also investments in distributed energy resource management systems, DERMs. It's investments in new ways to use home energy management systems. It's predictive analytics for utilities. Like Those things are going to have value for resiliency, but that is probably not even going to be the primary value that they can offer. So this is stuff we should be doing anyway. And that's why I think at agencies like DOE, you're going to see increased focus on resiliency. And it's a word that's going to replace climate change. That's actually a kind of a fun game we should play at some point, which is like take a DOE report under this administration and just do a find and replace and replace the word resiliency with climate change and see what happens. All right, let's take some questions from Twitter now. I put out the call for some uh, questions from folks before we started recording. And I got a couple in here. One was about the role of natural gas in microgrids. And I think we touched on that. Um, Another question is, like quantifying the economic value of resiliency. What is that value? And uh, Colleen, do you have any thoughts on that? Like what people are grappling with when you price in resiliency? Right. So I think that's a really important question because when you start talking about pricing in resiliency, you're talking about for a business, what is, you know, the cost of losing power for an hour, right? A manufacturing company might be able to value that. When you start talking about community microgrids, uh, Shale brought up the sad story earlier. I mean, you start getting to this question of how do you value a life and what is what is the value of resiliency when it's saving lives? And so I think that's where when you get to the community microgrid, the public institution microgrid, you start the conversation on is it economic? Is it something like Enchanted Rock is doing where it's clearly has a return on investment and it's, you know, great, go for it now versus, well, we may not get a return on investment. Maybe you can do some value stacking, right? You can sell some services to the grid. You can do some demand charge arbitrage perhaps, but when it comes down to it, a community resilience microgrid may not be the most economic thing all the time because it's there for times of disaster. Right. It's in the public interest. It's something from a public policy standpoint that, especially for critical facilities or for places like nursing homes, like it is a policy requirement to enable resilience 
for those kinds of places. But there should be some value attached to that still. I mean, we have to quantify things like this. And certainly insurers have to be able to quantify this somehow as they quantify everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> One last question here from Twitter, which is on inter- interconnection requirements. Um, we, we touched on this as well. But Tim Hayde from Scale Microgrid Solutions asks, you know, every utility has a different interconnection requirement for islanding making deployment very difficult. Should we have some kind of universal interconnection standard? Is that something that people are talking about, Colleen? I'd say it's always a subjective conversation, but it's not something that I think people are really focusing on right now. Right now, it's still hand-to-hand combat, like one project at a time. Yeah, it's, the microgrid world is still very customized. Yeah, I think that's the main point. I mean, it's hard enough to get universal interconnection standards for like solar alone, which of which we're deploying. We have over a million solar installations in the U.S. The number of microgrids is still in the hundreds. So it's all a unique, everyone is a unique snowflake. Well, clearly we're all in agreement here that Micro, more microgrids are necessary to help resiliency efforts in natural disasters that are becoming more frequent and more intense. Um, what are the biggest barriers to making that happen? We've identified a few, but like help us understand the landscape and the barriers to expanding that landscape of microgrids. Right. So currently, as I mentioned, the landscape is very customized projects that are spread out across the country of varying sizes, you know, from a couple hundred kilowatts to, you know, some of these big military installations that are 160 megawatts. With that customization, it makes it difficult to deploy things at scale. And so what you're seeing is a lot of developers are talking about trying to create more modular systems so that they can go into these more commercial buildings, into these community microgrids, and come out with something that doesn't take years to develop. Uh, The other big challenge is often on the regulatory side, whether utilities can own and develop microgrids. uh, Crossing, as I mentioned before, if a wire crosses a road is does that person developing the microgrid then become a utility and are they then regulated? So things of that nature are also uh, a big barrier. But we are starting to see more people exploring the uh, model similar to Enchanted Rock. Uh, Schneider Electric is doing a microgrid as a service model where Duke Energy is owning the systems, Schneider is providing the controls, and they're paying a monthly resilience fee, uh, the end users. And so Maryland County is doing that for two microgrids right now. And so that's another way that to, to find out the economic value of resiliency right there. Yeah. And like that's a great point about the, the regulatory barriers seem solvable and should not be political in any particular way. Utilities generally are in favor of microgrids. DER providers and technology providers are in favor of microgrids and regulators are in favor of resiliency. So this should be the kind of thing that crosses any sort of ideological divide or party lines and regulatory venues. And so in my mind, you should, you would hope to see regulators across all kinds of states who come from whatever background trying to look for ways to support the development of these technologies that clearly have a re- resiliency benefit. Yeah, for sure. More to come. Uh, Colleen Metalitza is our Grid Edge analyst focus on microgrids and blockchain. Colleen, thanks a lot. Thank you. And we didn't talk about blockchain, which is a, a whole other layer. It's a whole another layer we could have gone into. Yeah. We'll save that for another day. <laughs> yeah, Shale, uh, maybe we'll bring together a loose federation of weirdos for the, the next conversation on resiliency and layer blockchain in. Loose federation of weirdos, though it came from Scott Clevena, our CEO, talking about blockchain, applies to like most things that we do at GTN. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, with Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange. We want to hear from you. Share us your thoughts at podcast at greentechmedia.com. As always, you can tweet at us. We're getting more and more responses to our shows as we wade into the topics of the day and try to understand them along with all of you. So thanks for listening. Thanks for your responses. We appreciate you uh, reaching out and telling us what you think. Also, do us a favor and rate us on Apple Podcasts. A rating and a review is uh, huge for us. It helps us find new listeners. Thanks again. With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. We'll talk to you next week.